0: Welcome to the Center for Lit Podcast Network. You're listening to How to Eat an Elephant, a little book club for large books. Have you ever cast your eyes across a shelf full of classics and been driven screaming from the room by 500-page monsters with thick spines and important names? Then this is the show for you. We're here to take on these scary books together, because how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Hello, and welcome back to How to Eat an Elephant. Today, it's just Emily and I. Ian is uh, sick in bed, so we're going to carry the elephant without him. And uh, I'm excited to be here with Emily. It is a frosty day outside, but we are warm and cozy with some hot chocolate and
1: uh, and the most gigantic book of all time. So let's dive right in, Emily. Let's do it. You know, I love having Ian with us and he is an excellent host. However, I I do treasure the occasional time that you and I get to do this alone together. I think that's kind of fun. I agree. I think it's super fun. Ian has some
0: very strong opinions and usually they're (laughs) right, but um, it's fun to air our own for a moment. (laughs) Uh, No, no one is uh, pushing back. I know. (laughs) You and I tend to agree a lot,
1: and I think that's kind of fun. (laughs) Now, what a section for no uh, alternate opinion to get to come in. That might not be a good thing.
0: Well, I actually think Tolstoy might be our opposite in a lot of ways today. He says some pretty dramatic things in this passage. It's kind of a a coming together of a lot of themes in his novel, and I don't know if I agree with him
1: about some of them, so that'll be kind of fun. When does Tolstoy not say dramatic things, though? Right. You're so right. He's kind of a little contrarian. So uh, we start with
0: Pierre. We're back. We do. We left Pierre in kind of a nihilistic place. He was considering, as he's being taken into a... custody, I guess, of the French soldiers, he's considering that there is no order of things. He's wondering who is doing this to him? How could he possibly be in such a a dark place? And is there any force that has ordained this? And the end of the last chapter reads, uh, Pierre felt that it was no one. No one was responsible for this. It was the order of things, the turn of circumstances. Some order of things was killing him, Pierre, depriving him of life, of everything, annihilating him. Jeez, Pierre. And that's where we left him. I mean, for goodness sake, buddy.
1: You know, I am glad that we're going here, even though it's really dark, because I feel like Pierre is experiencing the thing that we've been wrestling with Tolstoy over, which is if his philosophy of history is correct, then how are we all not just cogs in a machine Mm. being like spit up and used by some kind of masochistic God? Right. You know? Yeah, it's a
0: good question. And I think this is the logical outworking of the worldview as Tolstoy tests it. But I wonder if Pierre's going to stay there. He definitely seems to at the beginning of this chapter. um, Things get worse for him, not better. As he's in captivity, he's thrown in with some other men who are thought to be responsible for arson. And they're going to be executed. So we see Pierre uh, sixth back in line. And the men ahead of him are being systematically murdered
1: right before his eyes. It's like that famous anecdote uh, of Dostoevsky, who isn't he the author who experienced this, that he oh, I was don't a prisoner know of war and experienced uh, relief right at the very last moment, thought he was Whoa. going to die and it changed his, changed his outlook on life. Interesting.
0: Well, it's interesting because Pierre doesn't experience relief, even though he is saved He's, it's a, it's going to be his turn next, and instead, the the kid a- ahead of him dies, clings to him for salvation, and then dies before his eyes, and then they stop killing people for yeah. no reason. And the Tolstoy says that Pierre did not understand, first of all, uh, and then he felt neither joy nor relief. So it's kind of a, a crisis moment, but he doesn't feel a new lease on life, which yeah. I think it sounds like Dostoevsky might have.
1: Well, I feel like your words, no reason are the key there. Cause he echoes what you read from the last chapter here in this first chapter. He says on all the Russian faces on the faces of the French soldiers and officers on all without exception, he read the same fear, horror, and struggle that were in his heart. But who finally is doing this? They're all suffering just as I am. Who is it? Who flashed for a second in Pierre's soul. So who is behind this seemingly random circumstance? Hmm. And it seems to echo what he
0: decided in his heart at the end of the previous chapter. It's just the order of things. It's this faceless mechanism that we're all cogs in, like you said, Emily, uh, rather than some kind of divinity with a personality and a reason to it. But where Pierre goes next after this scene, I think that that answer has a comeuppance when Pierre meets a new character. Before that, though, there's one thing that I was confused by in Pierre's response to watching the boy ahead of him get murdered. He says that he's not guilty, that he doesn't feel guilty. Do you remember where that is? Emily, I'm yeah, looking Yeah, that's for the it.
1: beginning of the next chapter where we get kind of Pierre's statement about this scene and its significance in his life. At the beginning of chapter 12, it says, from the moment when Pierre saw this horrible murder performed by people who did not want to do it, it was as if the spring that upheld everything and made it seem alive had been pulled from his soul, and it had all collapsed into a heap of meaningless trash. Mm. Uh, before, when doubts of this sort had come over Pierre, those doubts had had their source in his own guilt and deep in his soul, Pierre had felt then that salvation from that despair and those doubts lay in himself. But now he felt that it was not his guilt that caused the world to collapse in front of his eyes and leave only meaningless ruins. He felt that to return to faith in life was not in his power. Interesting. Which is, we've been saying that this whole time, that Pierre is just relying on himself over and over again. He's just trying to save himself. But at the
0: same time, he is rejecting faith of all sorts. As he's rejecting faith of all sorts in this moment, he's acknowledging that he needs a help from the outside, that he's not the answer to his nihilistic despair. So he's he's kind of turning one thing against the other. He's not going to rely on himself, but also not on a divine figure.
1: Of course he's depressed in this moment. No answer at all. But maybe that's exactly the reason why he's so open to a new perspective By the end of this chapter is that he, he has come up against the end of himself finally, but to answer your first question. Yeah. He says that he doesn't have any guilt for this situation.
0: It's interesting to me because he, he, of course, could, I suppose, make this argument that he's not guilty. He's just another one of the prisoners in that line, and it wasn't up to him that they stopped killing people right before him. But he also tries to um, eliminate all guilt on the part of the murderers. The French soldiers who are doing the killing... He paints them, Tolstoy does, in a very sympathetic light that they are shaking and horrified and they have to do this thing, but they don't understand it. And um, even as they walk away from the scene of the crime, a soldier tries to comfort himself for what has been done, but cannot. So neither the people who, who instigate this crime nor the people who suffer it have any guilt in the way that he describes it. They are all victimized by this violence and I wonder if Tolstoy is forcing us to acknowledge that regardless of our situation and our behavior, we are in need of someone to come in from the outside. We are not an answer to ourselves. I wonder if that's why he keeps harping on the idea of guilt. What do you think?
1: Interesting. It, it seems like the complete opposite of something like the Brothers Karamazov, where the main point is you are responsible for everything. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. For and everyone. everyone.
1: Instead, Pierre is saying that he is innocent and all of these people are innocent, whereas I can sympathize with that. And I think I think you might be right. I think that that is uh, that's a foundational assumption we have to make for the rest of his argument to follow through. Right. But technically speaking, I mean, someone can put up a fight, you know, they are responsible. They are pulling the trigger. They're the last link in the chain. But if that link fails, then then what? You don't know until you try. It reminds me
0: of that moment. I can't remember his name. It starts with a V and it's very, very Russian. And at one point he's pulled apart by a mob. Remember that scene? Mm. It was really yep. violent and dramatic and, and yep. horrifying. There's a moment in that scene where the mob could have gone another way. The guy in charge of everything could have turned their attention some other way and saved that man's life but they didn't. So one little choice made a huge difference. It's another circumstance where Tolstoy seems to be a little bit contradictory. Either your choice means something or it means nothing at all. Which one is it?
1: I wonder if he agrees with Pierre here, though, because of that moment as alternate evidence. And because if Pierre is really experiencing events as random here and not ordered by anyone, then, of course, there's no such thing as responsibility in that world because cause and effect don't exist and eh, you know i'm going back and forth Tolstoy <laughs> has know. kind of been telling us that cause and effect in the human realm doesn't exist
0: or rather that it over exists it's a multiplicity of causes yeah. everything okay. causes
1: an effect that's it I, that has to be it that there is, and because of the multiplicity of causes, I wouldn't be surprised if he ultimately comes back around to responsibility before everyone for everything. Yeah. But you have to, Peter has to come up against that first question. Is there a reason that this is happening?
0: Yeah. And I think that the word reason and the word understanding are shot through the next four chapters. And um, that might it might be connected. No one understands what's going on with their rational capacity, but there are other ways to perceive and come to peace with things that are happening in your life. And I think Tolstoy might be leading us to ask, what other ways are there to comprehend what's going on in your life beyond your rational faculty? I know Pierre's thinking that. I know Andre is as well. And when we think back to their conversation after Andre's first blue sky moment, it's they've come a long way in in moving past uh, a confidence in their own rational faculty to explain everything.
1: Yep, I think this section is really exciting because I think we're finally getting some answers. It's been almost 1,000 pages of asking questions and I do think that we get some answers now.
0: Tolstoy's gonna show his hand a little bit. Hopefully he's consistent. I I have my doubts. (laughs) He seems to go back on himself quite a bit. Well, we get a brand new character in the next chapter, when Pierre is is sent to this, um, well, a new holding cell, it seems to be a shed in someone's backyard or something like that, we get a brand new character who I know for a fact Emily is super fond of. So Emily, maybe you <laughs> could introduce for
1: us the our little potato friend. You are the worst. I know it. Uh, full disclosure, we spent several minutes listening to the internet pronounce the name of this new character and we still and can't do it <laughs> well it sounds so wrong it can't be right and i'm about to butcher it
0: it sounds french no i'll do it with you i won't make you do it by yourself it's something like platon or it's like it's got a french kind of sound to it yep. platon Carative. yep curative so the, yep the ae kind of Pléton. run together as far as we can tell. Something like that. I think that's a potato better than I friend. Could do. Might be. Better. I might just call him potato friend. We'll see.
1: <laughs> well, who is this guy, Emily? Names aside. Well, it is a fellow prisoner that Pierre encounters in this shed. Um, it's his neighbor uh, that he sits down next to, and he is just a regular old dude. He's a soldier, and we find out that he used to work on kind of an agricultural estate beforehand, which kind of lends him an air of simplicity and warmth. We're told that he used to have soldierly ways but now that he has been here they've all dropped away he has even Pierre says he's like the he began to think of him as like the essential Russian. So here he is he's the quintessential Russian and he is full of joy even though he doesn't have anything even though he he doesn't even know what's going to happen to him next, but he is so able to just live in the moment. In fact, he's like, he's got some like ghost of Christmas present vibes. Going. Yes, he does. <laughs> I totally agree with that. <laughs> he like forgets they have a conversation and Pierre like later asks him to repeat something and he can't remember what it was. He's so available in the present.
0: Yes. I, okay. I did wonder what in the world was going on with that because it also mentioned that he had been captured by the French from a hospital. Or from a, you know, a pop-up hospital yeah, he be in the city. he's He was supposed to be, like, raging with fever. So I wondered if there's also an element of he's a little bit crazed. Like, he's, a, he's
1: having delusions. Well, but then we're told that he's completely healthy. That he's ready and he, like, is completely vital uh, in a way that nobody else is. So...
0: Yeah. I don't know. That part was a little bit confusing. But what I got from his character is that he did seem to be a symbol of resilience and hope of the Russian spirit that um, Tolstoy has been giving us over and over again. He reminded me of Natasha in some ways in Mm. his, well, like you said, not looking past this very moment and living life to the fullest, regardless of his circumstance. That seems to be maybe an answer, even before he tells us anything about his worldview, an answer to Pierre's despair. It definitely pulls him out of it and comforts him
1: in the moment. Yep. He's very meticulous about the details, right? I mean, I famously, the potato, he um, <laughs> cuts apart really carefully and sprinkles with salt, and he just takes complete joy out of this meager feast. He turns the meagerest of meals into a feast, basically, um, which is just a beautiful image, but he is very careful to put his foot rags away yep. very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so he is tidy. He controls what he can, it seems yep. like. He has bounded himself to his what is within his reach, and he isn't concerned about what is beyond his reach.
0: He also is full of this peasant wisdom that I couldn't help but notice is rooted in faith. And that could be another thing that's quintessentially Russian. But all of his little, um, little bone mows, man proposes, God disposes, things like that, yeah. they, they all reference. They seem silly at first, but they have this kind of simple power to them if you look at them closely. And maybe the source of all of his joy and satisfaction comes from his belief
1: yeah, which, I mean, that's part of what's going on here. I think he isn't questioning. Mm-hmm. There, There's no questioning there, which mm, I don't know. I don't know if that's Tolstoy is advocating never to, to question or doubt. I mean, that's been the journey of his main characters this whole time. Yeah. But uh, there is something simple. There's something
0: about his character that feels to me like his life is done. And in his own mind, he is acknowledging every choice that he had has passed. And now he's just, he's surviving in this day and his future is out of his control. And so he's looking backwards and is satisfied with the way that things have happened to him, which is amazing given his circumstance. But he says the strangest thing. He's talking to Pierre and he says, well then, little falcon, We thought it was grief, but it was joy. He's talking about something that happened in his past. He ended up uh, being taken away from his family uh, and sent to the wars, but it saved his little brother who then had a family and took over the, the estate, and it was good for his brother, though it was bad for him. He says, We thought it was grief, but it was joy. If it wasn't for my sin, my brother would have had to go, and my younger brother had four children. while I had only my wife left, you see. So he he looks back and with, you know, hindsight, whatever, he can see so clearly the faithfulness of God and he praises him for ordaining things the way that he did. This seems to be a very faithful perspective that I haven't heard Tolstoy describe so clearly without a character like Maria, who we are looking askance at. What did you think of that? Are we supposed to
1: take that wholesale? Yeah, I think so. I think this is about I think this is as. Clear as Tolstoy has been with us, perhaps, yeah, in giving us a character that we can completely hang our hat on. And um it's a bit it's a it's a Christological inversion, a biblical inversion of glory. Like he he's the one who sent away, he's given to suffering, but he returns home and his father calls his family to stand in front of him and says, come here, bow down to his feet and you women bow down and you grandchildren bow down to understand. This is how things are. My gentle friend fate seeks ahead, but we keep judging. This isn't good. This isn't right. Our luck is like a water in a fishnet, drag it and it swells, pull it out and nothing's there. So it is, which is a really that, that image took me a long time to wrestle with. But thus far, I think what he's saying is in the moment, if you take something out of its context, then it can't be understood, right? The, the net swells when it's underwater and then you take it out and it hangs limp, right? So if we try to judge the things of this world by a standard that is otherworld, or by like the wrong standard, by our standard, essentially, by mm-hmm. a human understanding, then the supernatural things of this world will never understand because we're trying to apply a human understanding to it. That's us taking the net out of the water. But if we keep it in the water and its context, and the way, the mysterious way the world is made, the supernatural setup, then the net is full. Am I getting that right? I like that. No, that I think that
0: fits because the other element at work there is his articulation of judging, not being a good thing. And I think that connects to the rationality idea that that to turn to your own abilities, uh, dragging that net out of the water and articulating, here's what's going on here, and I understand completely, and with my own mind, I can make it fit. Um, that is not a worthwhile attempt according to this guy instead he says the right answer is to bow down to get on your knees and be subservient to something greater so leave the net where it is and let it fill with whatever you know the lord of the ocean decides to put in there
1: Mm -hmm.
0: i think that helps that image is a a deep one and it helps to unpack it for a minute
1: it's also a bit confusing
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) but Definitely. But I do think that this is Tolstoy, again, being really clear in what he believes is the right response of a man to his finite nature.
1: Yeah. uh, His prayer, which gets repeated a couple of times, I think is really beautiful. Lord, lay me down like a stone and raise me up like a loaf. I think that's another... It's it's another peasantism, Mm -hmm. but it is also really deep, I think. Again, it, it sounds super simple and... What, and colloquial or whatever, but it's also an image of resurrection. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's pretty beautiful. Mm, it is beautiful. Pierre agrees at the end
0: of this chapter, after we've examined, uh, how are we going to say his name? Platon? I'm what going time? with it. We're totally Americanizing <laughs> everything. Platon. So after we <laughs> examine Platon, Pierre can't sleep for the longest time and the passage ends this way he lay awake in the dark with open eyes listening to the regular snoring of Platon who lay beside him and he felt that the previously destroyed world was now arising in his soul with a new beauty on some new and unshakable foundations so where he was completely despairing before this articulation of faith from this potato friend has Pierre very (laughs) hopeful And unshakable, which I don't think we could have said
1: about Pierre at any moment previous in this. No, I think I think that's Tolstoy showing his hand. That we've seen Pierre have these moments over and over again. Right, he's had he had a very similar moment to this when he saw the soldiers on the battlefield and thought, Ah, to be simple, right? Everything is different now. I'm going to strive to live like these simple soldiers. Mm -hmm. And so I think the the fact that he sees it as new and unshakable foundations uh, is a cue that this might actually be it Mm. whatever it was that Peter has been searching for I I think that he might have just had a climactic moment here I think so too it definitely seems
0: that way and we'll have to test it by watching him in the in the successive chapters but he at least uh, believes that he's had a transformative experience and I think Tolstoy the narrator does too
1: What do you think, how is it different than when he saw the the soldiers on the battlefield and said, ah, yes, to be simple, let me go and do that now, and then doesn't? Well, I don't know. One, I was thinking that, though, because the
0: the potato scene is uh, is unmistakably a repetition
1: of Mm him eating with those simple folk.
0: Right. Yeah. Where they offer him their food and he even uses words like simple and peasant uh, in, ad- in admiration of these soldiers and wants to be like them. But in that scene, he has chosen. There's a lot of agency still. He's chosen to be there with them. He could leave at any time. He's actually a nobleman and all of them know it. Uh, but he is he's trying this out like a test being simple and poor and needy. And he thinks for Id- idyllic reasons that that would be a better moral choice. All of that is stripped away in this scene. He has no agency whatsoever. And it doesn't matter who he is. He's been leveled along with everyone else. And I wonder if that has changed his
1: perspective. His, he's actually needy. He doesn't need to pretend. I like that a lot because it means that in that first scene with the soldiers, he was on the right track. And there's nothing that he could have done to do it better. In fact, that's the whole point. There's nothing that he can do to do it better. He's been trying to do it better. And that isn't the point. The point is being a prisoner. You are a prisoner. Now what are you going to do?
0: And and enjoy. I mean, he -hmm. could have been enjoying his nobility in that moment he had what he had and he thought that he had agency in that but actually he didn't he just wasn't all the way to his neediest point yet and when he's at his neediest point there is still something to look up and enjoy at least that's what his his friend is telling him so there was pretense before there was a dissatisfaction with what he actually had and this time Maybe his eyes are open. Well, it was also like
1: taking away. In order to be simple, simple he tried to strip himself of things, whereas Platon is telling him to enrich his existence, no matter yeah. how, what you have, even if it's very little. If it's very much, enjoy the very much. It's a feast. Mm-hmm. Enjoy the feast, but enjoy it. Don't overlook it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Don't gorge yeah. yourself on the feast. Savor the feast. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I I wonder if that ties into my next question, because one thing that Platon does is he loves everyone. He loves animals. He loves his fellow inmates. He is full, is overflowing with affection for everyone around him. But Tolstoy makes sure to tell us that it's not individualized. It's not that he loves Pierre with all of his heart. He loves everything. And I wonder if that is a continuation of the same idea. Whatever you have, enjoy it to the fullest. It's a feast of human Mm. experience. And so share it with whoever you have, but it's not dependent on those around you. Maybe holding out all of the things that you enjoy in an open hand, trusting that your hand will be full, but again, acknowledging a higher power to fill your hand with the things that you need.
1: Yeah, I thought this was interesting, too, because it seems like so many of the things that Pierre has tried to do to save himself in the past are, like, close, but with shades of difference from this moment. And in the past, he has tried something very similar to love of everything, right? Yeah, like yes. He, he became a Mason, and he tried to turn himself into a philanthropist with no thought for himself and it was a complete disaster because it actually like at the time on the podcast we had conversations about how it wasn't particular that he he needs a particular love but here platone seems to be showing that no actually it is it isn't individual love yeah
0: but The other thing we noticed when Pierre was doing this back with the Masons was that there was a self-aggrandizing tone. He wasn't just doing it for the sake of loving his neighbor. He was doing it to rise in the ranks of the Masons and and maybe more so in his own self-estimation, you know. And I think Platon doesn't think about any of those things. That's not why he's loving his neighbor. He can't help himself. It is the overflow of his
1: heart, you know. And it is on a case by case basis. It is individuals like Platon and. Pierre have an individual relationship right. here and they care for each other. We're just also told that Platon wouldn't care if he, Pierre was taken away from him. So he savors his existence, but he also holds it with an open hand. He isn't grasping. He doesn't cling to it. Yeah. Again, I think ending passages
0: are really important. And what Pierre leaves this scene thinking of is that his life has no meaning as a separate entity but only has meaning as part of a whole. And maybe that is is kind of the nail in the coffin of this particular argument that his life, his ability to love his neighbor gives meaning to all those things around him. But on his own, building him, himself up with an image of how loving he is, it means nothing at all.
1: Yep, I like it. Each of his words and each of his acts was the manifestation of an activity he knew nothing about, which was his life. Mm. That feels very quintessentially Tolstoyan. Tolstoyan, yes, I think so too. Hmm. That you don't have to know anything about life in order to manifest it.
0: Well, I'm sure that this is intentional on Tolstoy's part, but the next section of our chapters for today is a shift from Pierre's revelations to Andre's death. So if we're thinking of that blue sky moment that Andre had and that conversation about the rational mind that he and Pierre went through, we get Pierre's revelation and then Andre uh, on the heels of it. And I I wonder if it's the same question um, being expressed through different characters. I think he's definitely still considering the methods by which we understand the things around us. Maria is heading into the the scene with the Rostovs and she's going to say goodbye to Andre and she's looking to understand um, what's gone on and to see if he's going to continue to live or if he's going to die soon. And yep. um, she struggles with that. Most everyone refuses to say anything about it. So words fail. Um, but I wonder, what did you take away from this scene, Emily?
1: Well, it's so many. I have so many things. To say. So many things. I'll start yeah. with the serious one. <laughs> the serious thing to say is that it seems like it's a test case for the kinds of things that Pierre has been thinking, that death mm-hmm. is like the ultimate proof of any philosophy. Mm-hmm. Will it result in a good death? If so, we might be on something, right? Yeah. So here we have a moment of death, and I think you're absolutely right. that The fact that it follows this climactic moment for Pierre seems really significant um, as kind of a, of a proof or check of it. Yeah, I like that. So also, though, I have to be up front I have some concerns. (laughs) My first concern is why did this dying man grow a disgusting mustache that he keeps touching? (laughs) I know.
0: Just quit touching it. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Tolstoy, as we've been saying all along, (laughs) describes the strangest little specifics about every person and it makes them jump off the page, but also it's kind of weird and gross sometimes. And this time, Andre's little mustache that he just keeps twirling in his fingers is yucky. It also reminded me of his first wife, that squirrel-like woman who had a little downy mustache. I wonder if that was on purpose.
1: I'm sure that it is. I'm sure this is an intentional mirroring of the beginning of the book she was dying now andre is dying <laughs> apparently yeah. one girl <laughs> <laughs> oh man well
0: that's one of my concerns the other one of my many concerns is that sonia is is hovering in the background of this entire dramatic series of chapters and she's just the worst she's yes She's almost violent in how much she hates Maria. And Maria can tell right away. And I don't think Maria knows about Sonia. Is that true? I Because if not, that makes Nikolai look even worse. She's at such a
1: disadvantage. I just think, I mean, this is like not key to the action of this scene at all. But I do think that we are totally justified in what we've been saying about Sonia, which is she's not as innocent as she thinks she is. (laughs) You'll get no argument from me on that. I think she's the living worst. Just the way the words Tolstoy used to describe her too just made her sound gross. The thick braid, (laughs) thick black braid and (laughs) (laughs) frown. Yeah. You just imagine her as like a... What was it? Uh, It reminds me of the description Lewis makes in The Silver Chair about the girls with the thick... What is it? Thick Thighs? School oh, thick thighs. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, don't Jill know Pole's school
0: that. fellows. Yes, no, I remember That's that. That's where no. my brain went. No, I definitely anyway. see that. And he used the word false a lot to describe her as well. That she's pretending to be so sweet with Maria, but instead she's it's all very false and you can see right through it. On the one hand, I'm sure I would be that way too in Sonia's position, but I would totally. he doesn't let her
1: off with with even one sidelong glance. Can I just be honest with you? I think that Andre is a complete butthole I
0: agree (laughs) oh my goodness Emily I'm so glad you said that because by the time Andre actually died he had had such a bad attitude to the very end that I was not (laughs) as sad as I should be given that this is page like a thousand I still think he never figured out how to have a good (laughs) attitude
1: I just like we're gonna go there with why it's philosophically significant and beautiful and all of that but like I just got to say, he could have, like, shown a little more kindness to his son. Yeah, even just (laughs) fake some affection.
0: The kid is seven. Oh, my goodness. It could be different times. Also, maybe we just don't understand the way that fathers interacted with their sons back then. Maybe the nannies did most of the mothering, etc. But even Maria is more tender than Andre with Andre's own son. Oh, so buggy. (laughs)
1: He just decides that he's above them all of a sudden, living on this spiritual plane. And he tries; he does try, a couple times to please them. But even the way that even Post-trail the way that he says that it though, is so condescending to please them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. I know that's just we a hot we can't take rip it. Ian would hate it
0: <laughs> if we ripped into Andre and that was the end of it. Ian would be very sad <laughs> <laughs> listening to this episode. So we've got to honor my, his memory, <laughs> right?
1: It's not my serious opinion about this scene, but it is. One that I had. <laughs> yep, I agree. Okay, anyway, to be serious about the scene, Andre is dying and he. we're told that he has two moments before Maria arrives in which he really has a serious struggle with the fact that he's going to die. And the first is when he sees Natasha and he, it says love kind of calls him back, a specific love calls him back to his life for a while. Um, and then later on, right before Maria arrives, he has this dream uh, in which he imagines a bunch of people in the room with him, and he he's and then all of a sudden, death is at the door, and he's trying to keep death out, and he realizes that he can't. He's fighting death, and then he has this revelation that death is an awakening. He right, he wakes up the moment that death enters the room, and he goes aha. Death is not the end. Death is an awakening mm-hmm. to something else, which is a lovely, a lovely idea.
0: It really is. The idea of death being not the end is a great takeaway. But I got caught on his conversation about love the, the first time that he goes around with this fear of, of dying and missing his individual articulation of love in his relationship with Natasha I wonder if I could read this little passage. He is like thinking about love and what love is and whether it's worth sticking around for as he's kind of holding death at arm's length. He says, love, what is love? Love hinders death. Love is life. Everything, everything I understand, I understand only because I love. Everything is, everything exists only because I love. Everything is connected only by that. Love is God. And to die means that I, a part of love, return to the common and eternal source. These thoughts seemed comforting to him, but they were only thoughts. Something was lacking in them. There was something one-sidedly personal, cerebral. There was no evidence. And in that moment, he falls asleep again. And I think every part of that little soliloquy is so significant. The fact that he puts love first, he says, love is God rather than God God is is love. Love. It's very Eastern. It is. Yeah. I wonder if that's why I have a hard time grasping it, that it's, it's foreign to
1: me. Yeah. It's almost, it's almost, um, Buddhist and like, I'm not, I don't know. I don't think that Tolstoy intended it that way, but I mean, it's Russia. It's where the East and and West meet. It does seem that there is an, an Eastern attitude. To this that he's going to be absorbed and in, back into this this thing which is love
0: yeah the other passage that stuck in my in my crawl though as i was reading was everything exists only because i love and again i would turn that on its head and say everything exists because of love but not andre's love that's he's focusing again on the wrong lover you know and I I found it hopeful when he ended the little soliloquy with "When I die, I return to be to the to the source of love, to the eternal source of love, which would of course be the divine, right?" But it seems like his his rationality and the reality of his experience are coming into conflict with one another. Hmm. He is dissatisfied though with that answer. It seems one sided. Tolstoy says and cerebral. So yeah. maybe the fact that he articulates it backwards is exactly what Tolstoy wants us to notice. He's he's ruminating on the importance of love, but he hasn't there hasn't been a proof. He hasn't
1: met the god of love yet. Right? And at the point that he does, he we're told he softens mm-hmm. 2 days before he dies or before Maria gets there, I guess. Yeah, But he doesn't, he he is still existing on some other plane. That's the the sign of his death, that he he can't engage with the people around him. How does that fit into this idea that the meaning of life is love if... Well, I I suppose it goes back to what Platon was trying to teach Pierre, which is it doesn't bother me if you go. It shouldn't Mm -hmm. bother you if I go. Right. I think he gets there as well a little earlier in
0: that same chapter I was reading from. Before he's found Natasha again, he's already dying and already thinking of the quality of love. And he says, the more he pondered the new principle of eternal love revealed to him, the more, though without feeling it himself, he renounced earthly life. To love everything, everybody, always to sacrifice oneself for love, meant to love no one, meant not to live this earthly life. And the more imbued he was with this principle of love, the more he renounced life and the more completely he destroyed that dreadful barrier, which without love stands between life and death. When in that first time he remembered that he had to die, he said to himself, well, so much the better. So this train of thought will take him to, to hating his life and being glad and willing to give it up so that he can enter into
1: a better existence. Is that what he's saying? Well, I don't know if he hates his life, but I wonder if it is just something a special gift to Andre, hmm. like, to make the parting easier. That Tolstoy isn't encouraging us to live on this plane that Andre is at, but is rather suggesting it's going to be okay in the right. end, right? The the effect that Andre's death has on those who love him, primarily Natasha and Maria and his son, is um, not, they wept, but not from their own personal grief. They wept from a reverent emotion that came over their souls before the awareness of the simple and solemn mystery of death that had been accomplished before them. Reverence is the effect of what André experiences for the living. And that is the key to all the philosophizing that Pierre is trying to do earlier on, that there has to be that foundational reliance and trust that there is in fact something or someone ordering events for the good before you can even begin to live and if andre rests then it's all okay Hmm. there
0: is something christological in that it feels like that you have to die in order to live
1: yeah yeah andre died before he died Mm-hmm. Actually, you know that famous Lewis quote from "Yeah, till we have faces." He he does. We're told that he died on that day, that he crossed over, mm-hmm. um, into the other plane of existence.
0: And it looked very passive. I mean, if we're if we're tying it back to that conversation between Platon and and Pierre, the open-handed willingness to receive whatever is coming to you that day, rather than. Uh, enforce your agency seems to be exactly what andre is experiencing in the last two days he gives up his agency and just waits
1: it's aggressive too like he in the dream he actively tries to fight it and hold the door back so death Mm -hmm. doesn't come in but it overwhelms this and and i think death is a placeholder for this Hmm. other realm of existence that is meaningful and is f- the ultimate fulfillment of human life that overwhelms him even though he's fighting it and so there's nothing there's nothing that andre could have done yeah. to escape it
0: i like i like that conclusion though that Death is representative of this fuller experience that he's going to. He's still gonna exist, but somewhere better, somewhere fuller, you know? And that's the way that Tolstoy leaves us or leaves Andre. He says the body is left by the spirit and they wonder, where has he gone? Where is he now? So an, an implication that he is somewhere, he still exists. I think that's really hopeful.
1: It's um it's the only way that someone could live. The way that Pierre wants to live now that he's met Kierativ, in order to be where present, where you're at, focused on the current moment and savor it, and enjoy the things that are immediately to hand, you have to trust that the necessary, the um, you're not going to miss it. Whatever is necessary for that other existence. That you you can't uh, miss it because you were too focused on the present moment and you weren't striving to meet it. It has to you have to trust that it's going to meet you or that's going to come and get you when the time is right. If you're going to rest in the moment.
0: Well, even though they can't express it in words and he keeps emphasizing that they can't understand it or articulate it, everyone seems to be on the same page about this significance. Pierre and Platon and Maria and Natasha and even the seven-year-old boy, they Mm -hmm. all understand in another way the significance of what has just happened and it gives them a feeling of reverent peace. I think that's amazing.
1: It's kind of a hopeful place to end a chapter where someone that we love has died. Totally. And I think it's united all of our main characters even though Pierre has no idea what's happened to Andre, he's kind of, as always, he's experiencing his own version of it. And they're all in a really good place now to experience what's coming next, kind of for the first time. Um, we're leaving them all on settled ground. Yeah, and I've, actually there have been relationships built
0: quickly over the fact of Andre's death that are going to carry us through, I can feel, to the end of the, the novel. Like Maria and Natasha are suddenly besties all of a sudden (laughs) and the way is open even blessed by andre for maria to marry nikolai rostov if she would like which is another kind of weaving together that we've been expecting
1: so it's kind of a hopeful place yeah things are things are looking good i mean not for pierre but also yes for pierre but poor pierre well
0: for pierre we he doesn't know this yet but he's actually if he ever makes it out of prison he's free from his wife for the first time in the whole novel. And he left and, you know, went to try to kill Napoleon before he got her message about that. But <laughs> she gone. So he's just, he's free and, and wealthy if he can ever
1: get out of a French prison, you know? Right. Yeah. That's just, uh, that's just the irony. Isn't that just how life goes? <laughs> yep. <laughs> I, I guess it's time to go eat a hot potato.
0: I think so. I think we need to cut it in half and put some salt on it. Really enjoy that grand potato, as our little potato friend says.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, his little potato friend.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I I did it, and now it's stuck. No, That's what we're gonna, gonna be, call him.
1: Uh, it's only a short jump from there to Mr. Potato Head.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't say it. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Wow. Well, thanks for joining us today, you guys. This has just been so fun, and we really enjoyed hanging out with you. We missed Ian, but he'll be back for the next episode. How much are we reading for the next time, Emily?
1: Next five chapters, we're on into part two of volume four, moving right along. Okay.
0: Well, I am looking forward to it. Can't wait to come back and discuss more of this elephant with you guys. And until then, bon appetit. Bon appetit.
1: Want to follow along with our reading? You can find a link to the schedule in the show notes for this episode. How to Eat an Elephant is a part of the Center for Lit podcast network. Visit our website at www.centerforlit.com to find our other literary shows, resources, and our membership program, The Pelican Society, where you can get access to a variety of live discussion groups. You can also find us on most social media channels thanks for tuning in. Until next time, happy reading.